Hi, here's Matt Sinner of Primal Fear and Sinner, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of that which we call Focus on Metal. Glad to be back on with you again for another week. And uh, just a heads up reminder that uh, 2020, the dumpster fire we've all grown to hate, is uh, slowly coming to a close. And uh, that also means that we are quickly approaching the uh, annual winter break for those of us over here at Focus on Metal HQ. So if in the next few weeks you uh, tune in and you're like, hey, wait a minute, there's no new Focus on Metal episode, we're not gone. We're just, again, taking our annual winter break, just a little bit of time off. Lots of time gets put into these shows each and every week. And, uh, you know, it's probably for every hour of audio that you're hearing there's uh, three to four hours of uh, background work just for all of that. So lots of stuff gets put in here every week for everything going on. So it's uh, deservedly every uh, every six months or so, we just kick back and decide to, uh, to put our feet up for a bit, relax, come back, recharge for more Focus on Metal. So just wanted to give you that heads up before we dive into what's going on this week on Focus on Metal. And actually, before I dive into this week, just want to give you the quick heads up if you haven't caught last week where we had uh, two great guests that uh, back on the show once again. I don't know how many times either one of these guys has been on the show, but it's definitely been more than uh, two to three for both of them that we had talks with uh, Reb Beach and also author Martin Popoff. So if you didn't catch that one, then uh, you want to head up to either focusonmetal.net Go over to the episodes page and find it there, the Reb and Martin Show. Or if uh, if you need to, you can also go over to iTunes, and either one of our iTunes feeds will also have uh, have last week's episode as well. So good stuff last week. Great talks with both of those guys. With Reb, it's on his uh, latest solo instrumental release, as well as updates on Winger and White Snake and Black Swan and everything else going on in Reb Beachland. And then for Martin, talking about some of the books he's, he's currently writing, things coming up. But primarily, it was to talk about uh, Richie's favorite era of Rush and also Martin's second part of his Rush trilogy, Limelight Rush in the 80s. And Richie does a pretty big uh, deep dive with Martin on uh, one of his favorite topics. So it seems like this month we're swinging back and forth between authors and artists, or in the case of last week, doing authors and artists. But two weeks ago, we talked to uh, Justin Quirk about his book, Nothing But a Good Time, all about uh, glam metal in the 80s. And uh, then we kind of did the artist and threw the author one in last week with Reb and Martin. We're swinging back firmly to the author category this week, talking with author Graham Stroud. So way back on episode 477, we talked with author Steve Pilkington, who had put out uh, Iron Maiden, every album, every song. And following in that same series this week, we are hitting up Graham Stroud, who just put out Thin Lizzy, every album, every song on track. 
So, of course, with uh, Lizzie being such a huge band for Richie, he was all about getting uh, getting hold of Graham and talking all about this book and getting his thoughts on all of that. And uh, so, very, very cool interview. And, you know, a lot of times with these ones, too, as I'm doing the editing, you know, it's the first time I'm hearing all of this as well. And this is one of these ones where Richie's got a really unique view and, uh, you know, early on, he poses some pretty cool things. And, you know, one initial thing, too, was the fact that uh, you'll hear in the interview, but Graham has also done a status quo book. And, uh, you know, Richie was comparing Lizzie to Quo and their popularity and relating that back to the U.S. as well. And I really hadn't thought about everything he was talking about with Graham until actually editing and hearing the interview. But I can definitely remember that, uh, you know, back here in the U.S., I can remember being in junior high school and nobody really, you know, knew Lizzie. It was kind of either you were a Zeppelin person or you were a Who person kind of a deal. That was really the this weird little split we had, the two big bands. No one ever really talked about Lizzie and stuff like that. But I can just remember that uh, there was one girl who came in one day and she had on a uh, a Black Rose t-shirt. And I think I was one of the only people that actually knew what the hell that was all about and stuff. And just hearing Richie asking Graham in the interview and comparing the uh, the whole thing of, you know, his status quo, huge band in the UK as well, and pretty much unknown here in the US. And almost the same thing with Lizzie. So I was like, wow, crap, I never really thought about any of that. And then just bringing it back to the whole popularity level and all that. And when you start asking people about Lizzie's songs, then, uh, you know, they kind of know the standard ones, right? They know Jailbreak, and they know Boys Are Back, and they know Whiskey in the Jar. And they may only know Whiskey in the Jar because Metallica covered Whiskey in the Jar. But again, there's nothing like kind of those provocative questions in an interview that make you think and, and bring you back and make you reminisce and, and all of that. And uh, definitely the on this one here, and even the last week's as well, uh, Richie's been knocking it out of the park with uh, some of those thoughts that have been coming out of his skull. And also, before we dive in, you know, sometimes when we're talking to authors, books may not be out or they're coming out or whatever, but definitely this book is already out. Thin Lizzy, every album, every song on track is available just about everywhere. If you're an Amazon shopper, you can definitely get it up there in paperback. It's like 21 bucks in stock right now, but it's available all over the place. So just like with the uh, with the Iron Maiden one, if you got that, then you know what to basically expect on any of the on-track series of books. But this one is definitely out there for you to grab. Uh, maybe even a great last-minute Christmas gift for a Thin Lizzy fan in your life. And oh yeah, one last thing before we also get into it with Graham. I know probably some of you out there are sharp enough to be thinking, what the heck is with the Matt Sinner thing at the beginning? And some of you will know right off the bat why I put Matt on there. And then others of you are just like going, ah, whatever, he just threw something on there as an ID. But no, there is actually a reason why I decided to uh, to utilize a Matt Sinner ID at the beginning of this week's episode. One is that uh, looking through there and I really, I thought I had a Scott Gorham ID and apparently I don't. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And then I thought, wait a minute. Matt Sinner is going to be one of the biggest Thin Lizzy fans out there. He absolutely adores the band. And in fact, if you go back and you start to listen to some of the Sinner albums, you will hear Thin Lizzy all over the place on those albums. You may not hear it so much on a Primal Fear album, but definitely if you go listen to Sinner, 
you will hear Thin Lizzy all over the place, especially if you're really listening for it. You'll be shocked at how much Thin Lizzy influences are uh, are there and coming out on those albums from Matt. So that's why I stuck a Matt Sinner ID over on the front of this is because, yeah, he's one of these guys I know that's a, a massive Thin Lizzy fan. In fact, I talked to Matt about that a few years back, too. I can't remember how long ago it was, but uh, that is why you've got a Matt Sinner ID on the front end of a strictly Thin Lizzy episode. So uh, with that explanation out of the way, a little bit of trivia for you, I'm going to turn it over to Richie and author Graham Stroud. Hello, Graham Stroud. Hi, Graham. It's Richie here for the interview. You okay? Richie, how are you? I'm all right. So I have you on, Graham. We're going to talk about the Lizzie book, the on-track album by album. Um, right. I do want to ask you, though, you did, a, you did one on status quo a couple of years ago. Was that the whole discography? <laughs> no. Um, it was the Frantic Four discography. So I just did up to 1985 when they, I think, imploded. And I didn't do anything after they, they reformed. Although um, they did do a Frantic Four reunion and I covered that as well. Okay. Did you go see the, any of those shows? Sadly, no. Um, I was working at... Uh, the Classic Rock Society magazine, Rock Society, and I was hoping I might get a reviewer's pass, but the uh, the features editor got a reviewer's pass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think if you had it done a book on Quo, on all their albums, the book would be 400 pages long. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think they've done a lot more things than they ever did at that time. Yeah. You can, you can use the Quo and Lizzie are both bands that, and I'm living here now long enough to realize that they're big outside of America, but when you when it comes to actually living over here and hearing any of their songs, they really are a cult band, both of them. I didn't realize until I did the Lizzie book just how many parallels there were to be. I mean, that's exactly right. They're big in Britain, massive in Britain, big in Europe, but almost unknown stateside, both of them. Yeah, um, I think especially the quo because when when you look at a band like that, when I when I was growing up, now I was born in seventy one. So by the time Lizzie were done, I was only twelve years of age. Even even being from Ireland, it was they were on the radio a little bit, but I was too young really to be paying much attention to them. Um, when I really got into music was like eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, and the big Irish band back then were you too, but. I do remember my my dad had uh, twelve gold bars, and Quo were Quo were definitely on top of the pops a lot. Like they had a ton of of hit singles. They did. In fact, um, I think probably after you know Quo Mark Two, if you can call it that, was more commercially successful even than Mark One. But for the diehard Quo fans, a lot of it was quite lightweight and a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I thought they'd given up. You know, I thought they'd just given up the ghost and decided to uh, just play the percentages. But I did actually have a, a chance to interview both um, Francis Rossi and Rick Parfit. Uh, and and they said, you know, it was dark days and they did a lot of things they didn't want to do and a lot of things they regretted, but they did actually get it back together in the end. And by the time um, Quo finished, if you can call it finished, I mean, they're still going now, um, 
but they were actually bringing out some good music again. Mm, definitely. Um, so when when did you discover Tin Lizzy? Do you know what? I've been racking my brains trying to come up with an answer to this, and I really don't know. Um, like a lot of people who get into music quite early in life, I had a big brother and a big sister come to that. And so a lot of my early musical influences would have come into the house via one or the other of them. And uh, I don't know when I first heard Thin Lizzy, but I, I am pretty sure that I got into them on the back of Live and Dangerous, because I remember Black Rose coming out, which was the album afterwards, and I was already big into the band by then. But I don't remember Life and Dangerous coming out, so somebody must have linked it to us, or we went around the mate's house and heard it or something, and it was Life and Dangerous that got me into the band, so that would have been 78 or thereabouts. Mm, I think, Graham, that's, that's the one album that, if anyone asked for the introduction to Tin Lizzy, that's the one I think a lot of people would recommend because it's a classic album. It's a live album. It's got a, you know, a broad stroke of all their best songs at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's like a, a greatest hits played live. And I don't think there's a single song that is inferior on the live version. You know, um, I'd rather listen to the live and dangerous version of every single song, apart from possibly the rocker. Mm. the old Eric Bell one. Um, I think that was possibly better in the studio, but everything else was just fantastic on that album. Absolutely rocked. Mm. So did you get a, the opportunity to see Lizzie live? Sadly, no. And this is a bone of contention between me and my wife because she saw them twice. <laughs> <laughs> what, can you remember when, when she saw them? Like who was in the lineup? Um, we think it was um, Snowy White. Uh, it's a renegade tour. It was at least one of the times. I'm not sure about the other time. Okay. I think the other time might have been at a festival. Yeah, I I was again. I was I was way too young to catch them. Now I did catch um, the version that they had with John Sykes, and it was Sykes, Marco Mendoza, Scott Gorham, Tommy Aldridge, and Darren Wharton. I did catch them in. I think it was the late nineties, and uh, they put on a de- they put on a decent show. Like, were you even interested in going to see them when when Sykes was in the band, or maybe when Ricky Warwick was fronting them? Um, yeah, at that time I wasn't really much of a gig goer, to be honest. I think looking back now, I missed out quite a lot of opportunities, bands I should have seen and could have seen. Mm. But uh, it was not my thing at the time. I was um, I was in a band myself, and I much preferred playing than watching. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I didn't I didn't uh, really consider seriously going to see them at that time, and of course I didn't realise that it would be that the window of opportunity would be so short. Mm. It's um, it's a, one of the things that blew me away a couple of years ago. Um, Judas Priest did the Epitaph tour over here and they had Black Label Society which is Zach Wilde's band and but they had Tin Lizzy opening and the Lizzy lineup at that time was um had Brian Downey in it and right. I, I'd seen I'd seen him with Tommy Aldridge and then I saw him with Brian and the difference was unbelievable that that Brian yeah. made made to the band sound 
the the swing he had, that swagger, that he was just such a good drummer. And you, you mentioned it a few times in the book that I don't I don't think amongst drummers he's underrated. But when anyone talks about Tin Lizzy the, as a band, he's always the one I think that gets mentioned last, and he shouldn't. Yeah. No, I agree. In fact, um, I remember I said I was in a band and in the mid-80s, I remember we were all practicing in this freezing cold changing room attached to um, a, a sports ground not far from where I live. And uh, we were just chatting about drummers like you do. And, and we were arguing about who was the best rock drummer in the world. And uh, there was a few honourable mentions, but it was all down to Neil Peart of Rush or Brian Downey. <laughs> Nobody else really got a look in. Wow. Uh, and the room was split between the two, but uh, even now I find it difficult to make up my mind, really. Yeah, I remember I interviewed Chris Sangaridis, the producer, and I, I posed the question about Brian being underrated, because he'd done, I think, um, I think he produced Thunder and Lightning, and he, I think he did Renegade as well, I might be wrong, but um, I asked... Yeah, he was involved in it. Yeah, so I asked Chris about is Brian Downey underrated? And he said, not amongst every drummer I've worked with, he's not. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And um, I, I have seen Brian. He's the only one of the bands I've seen live because uh, he has his own band now called Brian Downey's Alive and Dangerous, which kind of relives the glory days. Uh, they play, basically they play the Alive and Dangerous set plus a few other singers and songs. Uh, and I went to see them a couple of years ago playing in London. It's only a fairly small club, fairly low key, but it was literally the best gig I've ever been to. Uh, I suppose it helped that I knew all the songs, you know, and I was screaming away down the front, singing along, um, like a teenager, which I'm not. Uh, and it was absolutely fantastic, and it was such a kick to be able to see Brian play live, and for the book I actually got to interview him as well which is fantastic yeah how long did you spend on the phone with him I suppose about an hour okay um, I, I wasn't expecting an interview I just wanted to ask him some questions and as it happens I knew the promoter that was um, promoting Brian Down was alive and dangerous so I asked him if there's any chance he could uh, get me a, an in you know, perhaps uh, an email address or something, someone I could write, uh, just so I could leave some questions with him and perhaps maybe get back to me with him. And um, and he put me in touch with Brian Downey's manager. His manager put me in touch with somebody who was uh, handling interviews. They put me in touch with Brian, and Brian emailed me straight back and said, sure, I'll do the interview next week. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Brilliant. Uh, it was such a kick to me. Yeah. yeah. Now, Graham, what... When you were doing the interview with Brian, was there one thing you wanted to know? What question did you really want to ask him? Was it about an album? Was it about him him, him, him working on an album? Was it about Phil? Can you remember, was there one thing that stood out? The, the main thing I wanted to ask him was, what is that mushroom gonna do gonna da bit all about in um, <laughs> the whiskey in the jar? Mm-hmm. Uh, which he did interview, uh, he did, sorry, he did answer at quite some length, which was really good. There was another question, I'm just trying to remember what it was, there was another question I definitely wanted to ask him that I never actually got round to in the end, 
Um, but there were some details as well from, from the book. Um, Phil really liked to name-check people in his songs, people he knew, members of his family, members of his road crew. Quite a lot of them get mentioned by name in some of the early songs. And uh, for the sake of the book, I really wanted to know who he was talking about. So we discussed quite a few of those lyrics, and Brian gave me some pointers, which was really good. Mm. So uh, I think it was indispensable, really. I can't really imagine having written the book without him. Mm. Graham, do you, do you know anyone who thinks that the best 10 Lizzie albums are the first three? No. <laughs> Although um, there are quite a lot of members of the Thin Lizzie community. I mean, there are a lot of really manic fans, you know, really diehard fans who won't have a word said against any of the albums at all or any of the members of the band. Uh, and they view the early albums in the same way as the later ones. But I don't think I've ever heard or seen anybody say uh, that those three were their favourites. Uh, I'm sure there are some, because the third one, especially Vagabond of the Western World, is an absolute masterpiece. It is genius. And uh, it's the whole package, the Jim Fitzpatrick cover, the uh, the concept, the, the lyricism, the musicianship, which was really prog and really veering towards prog fusion, uh, as well as the poetry and everything. It is brilliant. But it's not what you think of when you think of Finzi. In my case, at least, I think of Light and Dangerous. Mm. And it's very difficult to um, put the two together. Uh, and I still prefer the Downey Gore, uh, sorry, the Robertson Gorham era. Uh, but I have a lot more respect now for Eric Bell than I did before I started the book. Yeah. Now, you brought up Jim Fitzpatrick there. And there's no doubt that some of the artwork he did on the albums sold records, that people looked at him in the store and their iconic album covers, like Johnny the Fox is a fantastic cover, Jailbreak. Um, but yeah. w- one of the things you do get in, into in the book, especially when it comes to Renegade and Thunder and Lightning, is um, Jim was kind of pushed aside um, by the, the label who didn't want to spend yeah. the money on the artwork. That 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 was definitely a shame. It's actually uh, a gross miscarriage of justice with the benefit of hindsight, because um, for Thunder and Lightning, especially, he had loads of concepts. So. Some of them are reproduced in the book. Um, there's one that's quite well known of um, a fist holding a flash of lightning against a starry background. Um, a lot of people know that one as a potential thunder and lightning cover, but when I was uh, emailing Jim, and he was very helpful as well, I have to say, he didn't even rate that one. He said it wasn't one of his favourite concepts. He thought it was a little bit subpar. And he produced, uh, or he provided four pictures, preliminary sketches for concepts that he had for Thunder and Lightning, which are in the book. But he also said he had some great ideas for Renegade, but he never even got a look in, hardly. He did do a poster, which um, was inside the cover of Renegade, but I've never seen the poster. I think it's very rare now. I don't know if it was only there for the first few pressings or, or what. Uh, but if you find one on eBay or Discogs or somewhere, it goes for quite a lot of money. Okay. The Renegade record, um, 
I'm in the minority. It's probably my favorite Lizzie album. And I, I love a lot of their albums, but that one just speaks to me a lot. And when I read the chapter you have here on Renegade, you seem to feel that that's a, that's a misunderstood record as well. Definitely. I'll tell you, apart from Thunder and Lightning, it's my favorite Lizzie record. And I think you're right. I think we are in the minority. <laughs> but uh, the, the early records, you could tell that Phil was more of a poet than a songwriter. He was almost speaking the lyrics, and he was, um, and it was just beautiful. Some of the stuff he came out with in the early days, and in fact, he produced a book of poetry, um, which did have some of the lyrics in it, but also a lot of uh, lyrics that never saw the light of music, as it were. Uh, and a lot of his stuff could stand up on its own without any music at all. But as time went on, um, the rocker came out more and the poet was submerged a little bit, uh, well, quite a lot. But I thought it came back a bit with Renegade. I thought the actual title song, Renegade itself, is a, just a fantastic piece of poetry. And uh, some of the other songs in there may not be typically what you think of when you think of Finn Lizzie, but they were masterpieces in their own right. And the production values as well, fantastic. I really love the record. I I think Snowy White is um is maligned by a lot of Lizzie fans. I think a lot of it is they wanted Gary Moore, they wanted Robbo, and they they ended up with Snowy. And a lot of fans, I think, just never seem to take to take to him. But I think some of his playing on Renegade and even on Chinatown a little bit is uh, is fantastic. Yeah, well, this is what Brian Downey said as well. He said. He thinks that where um, Snowy didn't really measure up to the other guitarists it was that he didn't move around very much. He was quiet and uh, quite reserved, whereas the, the other guitarists tended to put on quite a show. Uh, so from the live point of view, um, probably he suffered. But Brian said, you know, as far as what he played, he was fantastic. There was absolutely no argument about that. And in fact, um, you know, Finn Lizzy weren't kind of manoeuvred or inveigled into into having him. Phil chose him directly. So he must have been impressed enough by what he saw and heard to want him in the band. And uh and those I think he, he was he wasn't really used properly on the first album, Chinatown. Uh it didn't really suit his style. But uh, Renegade really did. And again, that's why I like the album. I think uh, the musicians were much were given things to do which suited their style. Not just Snowy, but uh, Darren Wharton, the keyboard player as well. He's used quite a lot on Renegade, and I think he does a fantastic job. Yeah. Did you did you say that um, Graham that Thunder and Lightning is your favourite? No, I said Renegade was my favourite. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, did I say did I say Thunder and Lightning when I meant um, Live and Dangerous? I might ah, have done. Okay. Okay. Well, I think this is my favourite by a long way. Um, okay. But then after that, of the studio albums, it's Renegade. Okay. Uh, Thunder and Lightning as as an album, it's, it sticks out. It's easily their heaviest record. Um, yeah. I, personally, I'm, I, I love the album. I, I'm not a fan of the artwork, because I'm, I'm a big John Sykes fan. Um, right. One of the things you mentioned in that chapter, and I couldn't believe it compared to the rest of their songs, are people actually believe that Cold Sweat is the best Tin Lizzy song. 
I, I, I just can't, I can't believe that with all, with all of the other songs that they wrote. Because that to me is, it's meat and potatoes, heavy metal. Yes. Yeah, straight out of the ZZ Top songbook. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it is. It is meat and potatoes, heavy metal. But then I suppose at that time, you know, in the mid-80s, uh, we were right in the middle of the new wave of British heavy metal, and that's what people were looking for. Um, compared with the other heavy metal bands around, that was much more in line with what was popular. And uh, and and it is a good song, you know. It's great, and if you're really into the the heavy metal side of it, then I've got no argument with it. But no, I, I always thought the same thing. It just sounded a bit basic to me. Mm. I, 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 and I, the song goes down is a great song. Um, I love Scott Gorham's guitar solo on that, and a lot of people probably think that Sykes as well. Yeah, probably because uh, Scott was—I mean, he was a great player. He wasn't as flash or as slick as uh, John or uh, Gary Moore, but he could play fast when he wanted to, <laughs> as well as having that uh, marvellous kind of uh, lyrical quality to his playing as well. He's a great guitarist, Scott. And he was always the guy that stayed in the band. You had all the other guys coming and going, and it was always Scott was, you know, Phil's right, Phil's right-hand man on, on the stage. Yeah, most definitely. And in fact, if you consider Black Star Riders to be the spiritual successor to Singularity, which uh, I'm not going to say one way or the other, to be honest, but um, they grew out of Singularity for definite. And Scott's still there, still with them. Hey folks, this is Ricky Warwick from Black Star Riders, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Yeah. I've interviewed Ricky Warwick a couple of times, and I asked him about, you know, going from Tin Lizzy to Black Star Riders, and I think if they had gone ahead and played as Tin Liz- and played as Tin Lizzy and wrote songs, I personally think they probably wouldn't. Have, they would have been done because I think the backlash would have been massive. Yeah, yeah, um, true, and it's actually it was quite a complicated story how the one band evolved into the other because. Several members of the band wanted to resurrect Tim Lizzy, and uh, well, they did for a while, just as a, a covers band, really, as a Tim Lizzy covers band. But then, when they wanted to bring out new music, you get the impression there was quite a debate about whether they could even think about doing it without Phil. And uh, in the end, they they had to do it because you know that's what musicians do. They they bring out new music. You can't just not do it but they decided that it wasn't going to happen under that name. They had to have a different name. And then, by the same token, if they were going to have a different name, then some of the band members weren't that interested in doing it because they didn't want to start again with a a whole new band. You know, they they were getting towards middle age by that time and they were quite comfortable. And um, perhaps it was just seemed like a lot of hard work. Uh, So in the end, there was only Scott. He was basically the only one left. Mm. Like and the, the, the early stuff, though the early Black Star Rider stuff, sounds so much like Sin Lizzy. It, yeah. it really could be Lizzy. Well, but they've developed their own sound since. Well, when you talk to Ricky Warwick, he's from Ireland. He, he's 
he's like that's in his blood. He grew up with all that stuff. So he's the, probably the main songwriter in the band. Uh, I know Damon Johnson was wrote with him, and he's he's left now. But it really is only Ricky and and Scott now. So th- th- they're bound to sound like 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 Tin Lizzy in a way. Yeah. And yeah. I, I I think they're a, I I personally I believe they're a, they're a great band, and the best decision they ever made was definitely to change the name. But when you when you talk about about you know going out again as Lizzie with Ricky singing, I think there's very few bands now that you know could get could do it because a, a lot of a lot of bands they've had new singers they've had multiple changes in singers that the big guy in the band is either not in it anymore or, or he's passed away, and I think Lizzie are one of these bands that you just can't you can't replace Phil. You just can't do it, so you're not even going to try. Whereas with a lot of the other bands, they'll all try. You look at Foreigner; they have no original members in it, as an example. Yeah, yeah. No, um, that's true. And even if the singer is not the main member of the band, even if he's just the guy at the front, uh, he's always so heavily associated with the whole band style and sound and look that it's very difficult to to change it. Um, I remember being quite amazed once I heard an interview with Pete Townsend of The Who and uh, and he was saying that all the musicians in the band uh, and he, he included himself um, as modestly as he could but um, Ent was sort of bassist and uh, drumming as well he said they're all geniuses they're all musical geniuses but Roger Daltrey he was just the guy who sang uh, and I was I was shocked because to me Roger Daltrey is the who he's the voice he's the look he's the front. Um, but he said no for the first few albums or the first few years. It, it was very difficult for Roger to find his voice. But it does go to show that the man at the front is heavily associated with the sound of the band. And of course Phil was more than just the man at the front. He was the songwriter. He was the main instigator. He. He ran the band. He pushed the whole thing along. So even if you found somebody who looked like him, sounded like him, and acted like him, it still wouldn't be him, and it wouldn't be the same band. Um, so I think in the end, like you, they did the right thing by uh, by changing the band name, and they've been very successful since, so good luck to them. Yeah. I, I think when, when you talk about Lizzie as a band, I think... Phil Phil was huge for the band, the front man, bass player, songwriter, and all that. But sometimes I get the impression in interviews that the other guys in the band didn't really like Phil getting all the attention, that Phil was Tin Lizzy, that in a way they wanted to put up their hand and say, hey, I'm in the band too, you know, I play the guitar, I play the drums or, or, or whatever. Like... Over the years, have you heard like that from fans, or if you interviewed Brian? Did you ever get that impression from Brian that you know people were were like just thinking that Phil was Lizzie and that the rest of them didn't really account for much? Do you know what? I haven't really had that impression from anyone. Um, I think everybody just more or less acknowledges that Phil was the life and the soul of the band. Everybody knows that the other musicians were fantastic and that they contributed a huge amount. 
another thing which I hadn't realized until, again, I started the book, was just what reverential awe uh, Brian Robertson is holding as a guitarist. Um, and many of the community say he's just the best guitarist there ever was. And Scott and Gary and Snowy and Eric and the rest were, were great guitarists, but Brian Robertson is really your guy. Uh, and everybody goes on about Brian down his training, which absolutely, I think especially in the late years, just grew into incredible proportions. So we all know that uh, the other guys were fantastic, but uh, speaking to Brian Downey, I never got any hint of jealousy or envy or anything injustice from him that filled all the attention. It just was accepted. I think that I think Graham that that's something the band really can't control unless the marketing department start putting just Phil on the on on magazine covers and things like that that the band really probably realized that they were a band and if Phil yeah, get, if, yeah. Phil, if Phil gets the attention then then so be it that they're they're comfortable in their own skin Yeah yeah that's what I think Yeah now you bring up Robbo there and the reverence that he's held in amongst Lizzie fans Yet, I think a lot of Lizzie fans pick Black Rose as their favorite studio record. And that's the one that Robbo yeah. never played on. Now, the chapter you have in the book about that, you're a fan of that record, but you think it's maybe elevated a little bit higher in the catalog than it should be. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm in two minds about Black Rose because... We we knew who Gary Moore was before that album. You know, we'd heard some fantastic playing from him. We knew that he was in Lizzie briefly previously to that. Um, I remember when I heard that Brian Robertson, Robbo, had left, I thought, well, that's, that's the chemistry of the band gone. But when I heard that Gary Moore was joining, you know, I could almost feel my mouth watering. I thought, this is going to be good. Uh, and it was. The guitar work on Black Rose is phenomenal. The drumming is absolutely stupendous. Uh, it's got a much more kind of in-your-face, strident kind of feel about it. Um, and it is a great record. But to me, it kind of stands out on the side a little bit. To me, it's still not really quite lizzy enough. <laughs> I don't know if uh, other people would agree with that. It's almost like it, it stands side by side with the Lizzie stuff, but it's still not my favourite Lizzie album. Mm, and you're definitely not a fan of S and M. Uh, no, I'm not a fan of that song. I think it's diabolical. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Bad Reputation record you hold very uh, in very high esteem. Um, I'm trying to think, is it Southbound had Scott's guitar solo? And you actually say that you think it's one of the best guitar solos of all time. Yeah. Uh, again, that's an album which um, I was familiar with, of course. I, I knew all the songs, but when I listened to it again for writing the book, I was just astounded by how good it was and how good the guitar was on it. It, the, the album tails off a bit towards the end, I think. It's almost as if they run out of ideas and they start sticking gospel in it and goodness knows what. Um, but it's got some of the best rock songs that they ever wrote and, as you say, some of the best guitar work. I think the one 
Scott's out, uh, solo that really sticks out to me on that is Dancing in the Moonlight. Okay, that's, I got the song wrong. I knew it was one of them. Um, I can't remember what I said about um, Southbound. I might, have, I might have waxed lyrical about that as well, but Dancing in the Moonlight is the one that really gets me because it's phrased so perfectly and he absolutely nails it and he does some kind of octave picking in there as well. And it's, it's perfect. And in fact, we covered that in in my band in the 80s uh, because it's just such a great song. It's not really a rock song at all. It's a soul song. It's funk. It's got a saxophone solo, for crying out loud. Mm. You know, the only thing that really makes it rock is Scott's solo, which is perfect. And it just means it straddles the, um, the genres so, so really well. I love the song. Yeah, I, th- I think... When you go through the whole discography of Lizzie, you're going to be astounded with the variation in styles. That they yeah. really, everyone talks about Zeppelin being so a really varied band, you know, from one album to the next. But the variation on the, in the Lizzie albums is is staggering as well, and it's just it just amazes me how how well written some of those songs were, and that the band were able to pull off all of these styles because a lot of people would say yeah they're the boys are back in town they're just a hard rock band but you know our jailbreak but th- there's just so much more to Lizzie than, than than a lot of people I think realise yeah definitely and I make the point as well that if you go into a record shop and you look for thing music then you're going to be looking in the hard rock heavy metal section which to me just seems wrong um I think Live and Dangerous made them a really hard rock band. Before that, they were a rock band, sure. But um, you wouldn't have put them in that same category. But Live and Dangerous was hard and heavy. And the albums after that tried to emulate it. I think they did go heavier after that. But even with um, some of the heavier stuff, like uh, Emerald and Warrior and Jailbreak, um, the way they play it is still fairly restrained on the studio versions. It wasn't really until Life and Danger, so they let rip. And in the early stuff, as you say, um, you know, the Eric Bell albums, there's hardly any rock in there at all. There's one or two rock songs, but mostly it's prog, I would say, and almost folk some of the time. Yeah. Um, now, the reverence these guys are held amongst other musicians it's pretty legendary. I've spoken to a lot of them and you know, the minute you bring up Tin Lizzy, it's like, Oh my God, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're gods. Now I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you've interviewed many musicians over the years like that, that, that feel the same way. Have you ever had any musicians say like when you bring up Tin Lizzy, say one of the best fans of all time? Um, I think the only time it's ever really come up in conversation was, um, I interviewed a couple of the members of Wishbone Ash. And Ash are quite widely credited with, if not inventing, and certainly pioneering the twin guitar sound. Um, And it was after they started doing it that Lizzie started doing it. I mean, Lizzie started off as a one-guitar band. And then when they got Gorham and Robertson in, they became a two-guitar band. And that suddenly was their sound. I think this is why people have trouble with the first albums, the Eric Bell albums, because they associate Tim Lizzie with their whole twin guitar setup. 
and uh, it just wasn't there for the first three albums. And uh, and certainly, um, they went on to influence other bands as well. Iron Maiden particularly come to mind. It really, again, pushed the twin guitar set up, or even more, three guitars sometimes. Uh, but I don't think uh, in any of the interviews I've had have we really gone into the influence that Tim uh, Lizzie had. Uh, it's something that's missing in my catalogue, I think. I'll, I'll have to try and uh, push that a little bit more in future interviews. Yeah, I, I was at a show here a few years ago and I interviewed, um, you know, the band Overkill, their trash metal band. from uh, yeah. they're, they're from New Jersey, I think. They've been going since the 80s. And they just brought out a record, and I think the bonus song on it was Emerald. And I'm I'm interviewing Bobby Blitz before the show, and he told me that they were put that was in the set. So you have a trash metal band from the East Coast playing Emerald. So I think (laughs) that's their influence is is everywhere. I think it's still there to this day. Um, you know they were up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and. Of course, they didn't get in. They're probably not big enough over here. But I think especially amongst guitar players and, and singers when it comes to lyrics, um, all you got to do is mention the name of that band. And they're just, they're they're in awe of them. So f- final question for me, Graham, and you already an- answered that. Your underrated Lizzie record is Renegade, right? What do you think is the over, yeah. what's the overrated Tin Lizzie record? Is it Black Rose? No, I think Black Rose deserves the accolades it gets. The one that uh, I think is overrated is Chinatown. And again, this is going to put me at odds with a lot of Lizzie fans because a lot of the the fan uh, writing that I've seen really late Chinatown. A lot of people could say it's their favourite album. Uh, to me, I think it's my least favourite. And uh, it's because... Um, they, they they got snowy into the band just before that and then seemed to make a really bad decision about what kind of music they were going to play. I think, as I mentioned, they'd already gone heavy. They'd gone heavy with Live and Dangerous. They'd gone heavy with Black Rose. And they went heavy with Chinatown. And uh, Phil wrote some hard-working songs like the title track and Killer on the Loose. But Snowy, as we all know, wasn't really a heavy rock guitarist. He was a blues guitarist. Uh, and they had Darren Wharton in the band then as well as a session player but I don't think there's a single song on Chinatown where he shines or even really particularly adds anything it's as if um, they they wrote the album for the wrong musicians or got the wrong musicians to play the album and then the production as well is very mushy and muddy Uh, I I don't like it Uh, this is why it's such a surprise to me that when Renegade came out it was just so much better (laughs) to me it was better in every way they they seem to pick up on what Snowy was good at. They seem to pick up on what Darren Wharton was good at. The production was pin sharp, fantastic. The poetry was back. Everything was better. I I, I wouldn't put Chinatown up there as one of my favourites either. When when that album is good, it's really good. But not all of it yeah. is not all of it is really good. And I think a lot of people compare that record to Black Rose, and it's like. Yeah, there's no real comparison between the two. I, personally, I've never had anyone tell me that Chinatown is one of their favourites. So, but again, right. again, a lot of you know everyone has different opinions about albums from certain bands. So, you know, a, a lot of people with Lizzie they're going to say, "Yep, yeah, it's Jailbreak." Yeah, it's Black Rose. 
I've never had anyone say Chinatown. Yeah, I've seen that quite often, I think, especially amongst, you know, the younger fans. And when I say younger, you know, they're probably in their 40s now. But uh, for a lot of people, Chinatown was like their first introduction. And there were some successful singles off it. So uh, there are some people that got into Lizzie on the back of Chinatown and still wrote it as their favourite. Graham, wasn't wasn't part of one of the songs on Chinatown used on top of the pops? Um. They, they used Yellow Pearl as the theme tune for Top of the Pops oh. a while, if you're thinking of that, which was a Phil Lynott solo song. Yeah, that's the solo song. That's the one. I'm, I'm always getting these things mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, you might be right. I'll have to, have to think about that. Yeah. But um, just thinking about um, going back right to the beginning, we were talking about Lizzie not being well known in the States, which is really true. But I have to say, from, from my contact with the Sinuji community, you know, online forums and stuff, there are a lot of people in the States who are really, really into music. They, they run tribute bands and all kinds of stuff. They might be in the minority, but the ones that do like them really like them. Okay. So lots of, uh, you know, love goes out to our stateside music fans. Mm. So, so, Graham, what, are you working on another book now or uh, are you taking a break? I'm taking a break. Okay. <laughs> it takes quite a lot out of me. Uh, I, I, writing is not my full-time position. It's not my day job. It's something I do which I enjoy. But uh, you have to put so much time and effort and research into a book like that that uh, at the moment, I'm taking a break. Okay. Now, you've you've done Lizzie and you've done Status Quo. What band yeah. is on is on your wish list that you could do a book like this on? Do you have one? Boston. Boston. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Any particular reason why? Boston to me are legendary. Tom Schultz is legendary. Whacking great big gaps between each album because the guy was just so perfectionist about the musical production that he could not allow anything to go past that wasn't perfect. And the musicianship on the first couple of Boston albums is absolutely extraordinary, and the production. Um, Tom Schultz is on my wish list of people to interview. Uh, Again, you know, I don't like the later stuff so much as the early stuff. But, uh, and it would be a fairly short book as well, I have to say. Yeah, they've so done. How, 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 how many albums do they have? Like six? Is it six or seven, maybe? Yeah, something like that. I think it's six. Okay. I've not even got the last couple. Okay, okay. Well, Graham, I'm going to leave you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Richard. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, and I hope the book does well because it's definitely well worth a read. Anything to do with Lizzie, and uh, I'm buying it. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's great. All right, Graham. We'll have a good rest of the day. All right, all right. Take, take care. Bye. I honestly think that uh, Richie and Graham could have just kept going and going on all things Lizzie. And uh, I'm actually surprised that uh, he didn't talk so much about Quo in the beginning that uh, he shorted out all the Lizzie uh, conversation because uh, it's not very often that we have somebody on the show that Richie's able to talk to about both of those bands. But that is a wrap for our talk with author Graham Stroud uh, about his brand new release, Thin Lizzy, 
every album, every song on track. And again, go out and uh, search that one out. Good stuff. And also, you might, uh, if you're very interested, uh, if you're a Quo fan or if you want to learn about Quo, then uh, maybe go back and pick up Graham's prior book, Status Quo, Song by Song. So depending on what happens in the next week or so, next week... We uh, might actually be wrapping up 2020. We'll see. But if things fall into place, and I have a pretty good feeling that they will, then we'll have a great guest on next week. We've had him on before, but uh, we've been waiting patiently to be able to talk to him again. He's been on kind of uh, literally a blackout period, not allowed to talk to anybody until December. But I believe that Richie has gotten the word that that has been lifted. He's allowed to talk to people again. And uh, talking about something that uh, was actually a, a pretty good event for 2020. We've had a lot of those in hard rock and metal this year. And this is definitely another great one. So hopefully everything will work out and we will end our 2020 season of episodes with a pretty killer guest, a huge friend and supporter of the show about a really awesome band and a really awesome brand new release. That and True Disclosure, I will admit I bought on uh, CD and vinyl. But if all of that pulls together, then that may actually cap off our our 2020 season. And then we will launch into winter break for, uh, for the next few weeks after that. But we'll see. Don't know yet because obviously that hasn't come together yet. And, you know, with COVID and all this other crap, everything is that much more difficult to make happen So uh, we will just have to wait and see if that thing drops into our lap. But like I said, uh, he's already reached out to Richie, and it looks like things should should flow in. But you never know. People get sick. Shit happens. It's been just a never-ending cluster this year. And, you know, also, as we're, you know, streaming towards the holidays and, you know, the days are counting down, one thing I will want to throw out there is, is, uh, you know, with some of the people really not shopping this year, getting into stores and all of that, that uh, you may find that there are still some great releases left over from Record Store Day, uh, you know, in your local vinyl outlets. So uh, if you're definitely into vinyl, I would urge you to uh, to check out some of that stuff. And again, if you're not uh, really willing to go into the stores physically and potentially expose yourself and all that, one great source to go is up uh, NewburyComics.com. You know, they got lots of Newbury comics around here because obviously started here in, uh, on Newbury Street in Boston. But uh, they had some really good stuff for Record Store Day. Anybody that uh, follows us on Twitter will see uh, some of the great finds that uh, I was able to get going out on uh, on Black Friday at uh, one of the Newbury comics around here. Good stuff. In fact, the uh, the Dio picture shape one is actually one that uh, my girlfriend found in the bin as she was uh, searching for some good stuff on Record Store Day as well. But there are still some great stuff that's out there. I was even able to get some uh, stuff from the earlier Record Store Day from this year as well. So, uh, you know, if you're into vinyl or you got somebody around in your life that is really digging vinyl, then uh, you may want to go, you know, just check out your local vinyl outlets. Go up to NewburyComics.com, see if they have anything left. Obviously, you probably won't get one of the regional releases, but definitely there is uh, some good vinyl, I think, still out there left over from uh, Record Store Day because people are just been hunkering down. 
So again, big thanks to Graham Strahd taking a lot of time to talk to us all about the brand new book, Thin Lizzy, every album, every song. And again, go out there, pick that up. Good stuff. And um, yeah, I think that will pretty much do it for another week of Focus on Metal. So that's it. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, stay safe out there. And as always, until we talk to you again next week, we want you to remember to Focus on Metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.